LegalizeFreedom.com Why are we here? Where do we come from? Where are we going? From the nature of reality to the future of humanity. Beyond politics, poverty and war. LegalizeFreedom.com Greetings and welcome once again to LegalizeFreedom.com. My name's Greg Moffat, and my guest today is author and international security analyst, Dr. Nafiz Mozadek Ahmed, and we'll be discussing his book, A User's Guide to the Crisis of Civilization and How to Save It, and the accompanying film simply titled The Crisis of Civilization. It often seems that different crises are competing to devastate civilization. The Crisis of Civilization argues that financial meltdown, environmental degradation, dwindling oil reserves, terrorism, and food shortages need to be considered as part of the same ailing system. Most accounts of our contemporary global crises focus on one area or another to the exclusion of the rest. The crisis of civilization suggests that the unwillingness of experts to look outside their own fields explains why there is so much disagreement and misunderstanding about the nature of the global threats that we face. The crisis of civilization attempts to investigate all of these problem areas not as isolated events, but as trends and processes that belong to a single global system. We are therefore not dealing with a clash of civilizations, as Samuel Huntington argued, nor have we witnessed the end of history that Francis Fukuyama prematurely declared. Rather, we are dealing with the end of the industrial age, a true and fundamental crisis of civilization itself. Hello and welcome, Nafiz Ahmed, and thank you very much for joining us today on LegalizeFreedom.com. Thanks, Greg. It's a pleasure to be on. Now, Nafiz, we're here today to discuss uh, your film, The Crisis of Civilization, uh, which is based on your book, uh, A User's Guide to the Crisis of Civilization and How to Save It. Uh, so perhaps we could start out with an overview of this, um, which seems to me to be essentially that when we look at the laundry list of problems that the world is facing um, we have a tendency to look at each one in isolation, and this comes from our uh, human nature that we've developed. Uh, we're living in a sort of illusion of separateness, and that uh, we're somehow not part of nature, which of course wasn't always the case at all. Uh, arguably, for most of our existence, we were very much uh, part of nature. And if we take a more holistic view of the situations we're facing and realise that everything's interdependent, then that really does change uh, the game. Absolutely, yeah. Um, I mean, when I, I when I started working on this project, I was um, I was actually still doing my PhD, um, and about genocide and the structural context of genocide, and what what was happening, what inspired me to kind of look into these bigger issues like climate change and energy and you know the food crisis, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, more more in detail, was the more I started to look at the kind of surface symptoms of war and conflict, the more you find that there are actually these deeper structural and systemic causes which lead people to engage in conflict. 
and it doesn't and it doesn't just lead them in a kind of um in a, in a kind of very simplistic cause effect way which is a deterministic thing but rather it's because also because of the ideologies that people carry and the way in which they interpret um the, the structural and systemic challenges that they're facing that often leads them to resolve it through violence and conflict so the more i started to look into that kind of stuff as i started to get more interested in the environmental context of, of conflict or the energy context of conflict i started to realize that even those bigger crises that we're looking at are framed in in these in this very very fragmented way within the conventional scientific discipline and that's not to say that science in its current form hasn't brought with it a huge amount of knowledge it hasn't made you know massive progress in, in our understanding of of the way certain things work there's there's no doubt about that but the problem is is that the way in which our science functions right now because of the the need for for expertise and for understanding specific things there is this kind of disciplinary um kind of obsession with with going deeper and deeper and deeper into understanding very small kind of subsets of what is going on and specializing more and more and more and as we specialize more and more and more we tend to kind of miss the way in which our specialisms are are inherently interlinked within the actual real world to other specialisms and other disciplines um and as a consequence we've, we've completely missed we don't have we don't have a science or scientific framework um i mean obviously there are there are people trying to develop scientific frameworks that we don't really have ingrained within science at the moment a way of looking and linking up these things holistically and seeing how you know biology the environment physics all of these things are actually fundamentally part of one spectrum of reality instead we're always looking at one thing as a consequence we really are out of touch with the speed scope and pace of um of, of the crises that, that that are currently underway in terms of climate change energy uh, the food crisis the economic crisis and the way these are both um escalating each other and escalating the propensity <clears throat> to all kinds of conflict well there, there's sort of a problem uh, of distrust almost of interdisciplinary work and people who for example if you get biologists who are maybe working on a problem and they find that they need to learn something about chemistry maybe get into that area in order to advance their work it's almost like the the perception is oh you shouldn't be doing that you need to stay within your field and of course a lot of the a lot of the useful and more interesting cutting edge science is interdisciplinary just by necessity but still there's this persistence that you know you're out of your depth and, and never mind scientists crossing over into other fields if you have lay people however well educated who then perhaps advance ideas or solutions uh, on a scientific basis that well we are not uh, you're not accredited you know you're not qualified you haven't been peer reviewed etc etc that in itself is a big problem yeah i mean this is i mean the thing is is that i mean i i'm all for and i understand um why there are certain standards like the, the like i understand the logic of peer review which is that scientific knowledge should be tested and there should be that you know you should have peers who have some kind of experience in the field looking at it and kind of kind of all of them kind of assessing mutually assessing and, and and it seems like a really great idea and in practice however i think there is a danger and 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 even you know there are people who've studied scientific paradigms and how they evolve i mean the whole, you know the whole thomas kuhn thing 
about paradigms and how they shift and all of that. I mean, it, it does raise interesting questions about how perfectly um, well-evidenced um, and, and, and well-tested science, scientific ideas sometimes can, can, can not be taken seriously in the majority scientific community precisely because of the groupthink dynamic that, that can tend to dominate in some circles. Um, but at the same time, I think it's important to be to not then develop a completely. I mean, one one thing that I've seen that is that is developed, for example, in in the way people have responded to climate science, is is a is a very is a deep anti-science um, perspective, which is obviously a kind of a slightly irrational and regressive reaction. And while while so while I think there's scope to be critical of scientific orthodoxy in some cases and to be engaged in that and been trying to move the debate forward and to recognize that there you know you do get sometimes aggressive groupthink dynamics which we should we should always challenge at the same time we don't want to fall into the trap of anti-science um which could open the door to just all kinds of ridiculous and and, and kind of out there thinking which is not grounded in some some kind of a coherent evidentiary basis at the same time you know there are many fields which are not recognized by orthodox science um, which really have massive amounts of proof for them um, and you know you're looking at looking at some of the new developments in physics um, some of the some of the um, you know the implications for even things like telekinesis and things like that which you know we know for a fact that there have been um, you know government programs which have experimented with this um, and you know very senior physicists who have been involved in in looking at that kind of stuff, so I think it's important to recognise that there are, there are sometimes there are sometimes interesting reasons why establishment doesn't want to kind of give credence to certain um, certain trends of thinking which may challenge the orthodoxy. Well, there's, uh, two things there we mentioned out there thinking, and uh, you know how that can be sometimes you know misleading and erroneous and a complete distraction, leading us nowhere, not tested, not proved, not provable. Uh, but equally, the issue there is that sometimes it's out there thinking that, that holds the key to the solution. A lot of great scientific uh, quantum leaps have been taken by people who were, to use the old cliche, thinking outside the box. Uh, the other side of that, then, of course, is that science has been manipulated for other to serve other agendas and to other ends. And the cases of that have led some people, as you say, to become anti-science. But we can't really afford to throw out the baby with the bathwater in this case. It's just in the, the sea of information that we now have, particularly in the Internet age, it's trying to discern what's, uh, you know, what's verifiable, what rings true, what's testable, and just sifting through all that for what we can actually use and just understand that we, we have to, in this day and age, put up with that background noise, uh, a lot of which might be nonsense. Absolutely. I mean, I, I totally agree with you. I think um, it's important to recognise at the core of what, the core of what we call good science is is about be, ha, having a, a consistent respect for evidence, um, being you know self-critical and, and self-aware, um, trying to kind of you know separate out your own your own perceptions and your own kind of beliefs from from the evidence and being clear that you know trying to trying to make sure that you're not influencing your investigations of these things, being you know being critical of of um, of all kinds of different thinking from a rational perspective, you know, using logic. I think it's all about, and you know, what you said about being, you know, things being verifiable, being testable. I think those are the fundamental principles of, of science, which, 
you know, we try to apply. And, and you, I think we can be critical of scientists when we think they are failing to apply those principles um, in, in a fair and balanced way. That, that, and, and that's absolutely the case. And it's true what, what you said about, about um, the way science progresses. And I think it, actually this is recognised within um, mainstream philosophy of science, that often science, science fundamentally progresses by, uh, by the minority, by, by, the, by the, the irate minority who fight some, stumbles upon something which will challenge the prevailing paradigm. I mean, Einstein, for example, um, you know, was, was, was not, when he first discovered his theories at the, at the beginning, was not considered to be, um, you know, part of that mainstream orthodoxy. So many of the, ma of the major scientists who've influenced um, contemporary science were, were not part of the kind of establishment orthodoxy of, of science. So it's important to have an open mind, I think, and to just try and be, be always criti be critical and aware. Now, in the question of uh, science being used uh, to serve other agendas, uh, scientific evidence being manipulated or misrepresented, that does happen, of course, and we just discussed some of the negative effects of that. And perhaps where that's most evident is with the issue of uh, climate change stroke global warming, whatever you want to call it. Uh, not so much the wider environmental problems of pollution, but in this specific area, which is um, a huge issue uh, as going forward, the science and the truth of it or otherwise it has become a sort of real stumbling block. Yeah, um, there's, there's definitely um, a perception that um, the science around this has been muddied. I mean, in, and obviously in the film, we weren't able to go into detail on... Um, the issue of how to how to navigate the uh, the, the spectrum of, um, of of dissent around this issue, um, but in my I mean one of the reasons I actually started this whole project was because when I was starting to go into all of these different things, I myself felt confused by the the range of opinions seemingly amongst experts on, on all of these issues, you know, on climate change. You, know, you had some people saying it was real, some people saying it wasn't real, some people saying it's you know it's completely man-made, some people saying that it's not even happening. Um, a lot of them, all of them, kind of claiming scientific credentials. Even you know, on energy, we still have this big debate about peak oil: is it happening? Is it not happening? Um, on the economic crisis, you know, what's the cause of it? Um, so, in all of these things, I felt that there really was a sense of confusion. Um, about what was going on. So I set out to try and, and that's why I called it a user's guide. I set out to really try to sift through um, and make sense of all of this stuff. Um, and um, I came, when I went through the climate change stuff, I, I started off quite confused about that. Um, but as I went deeper into it, it became clearer and clearer to me that generally speaking, um, there is definitely a, a, there's definitely an overwhelming consensus amongst climate scientists on the reality of climate change. And I, as I went into it, I looked at the skeptic arguments, and um, you know, th th there's very there's a whole rate there's, ma there's a massive it's a massive minefield. I tried to tackle most of the main ones in my book, and actually, in the first chapter of my book, I systematically go through. Um, a lot of the skeptical, the skeptic arguments to do with, for example, is global warming actually happening? Um, if so, what is it? What is causing it? Is it caused by cyclic variations in, in in the Earth's atmosphere? Is it caused by the sun? You know, various different arguments that are put forward. 
Um, and I came, to, I, I came to the conclusion that that climate change is real. And actually, what I found interesting was that rather than, um, if anything, rather than the situation being that um, the the kind of the climate change, the climate scientist consensus is is too kind of alarmist. I actually came to the conclusion that the consensus is actually quite conservative. Um, and I, I, I ended up speaking to a number of scientists who feel that who, who feel that actually the the, the, re, the the science has been there's been an effort by government to actually dampen the the um, the implications of the evidence. And we've seen this and I talk about this in, in, in the in my book, the way that the IPCC has actually been interfered with by government policymakers to try and make its findings more palatable. And to fit with a very, very simple kind of business as usual approach to say, you know, we'll just carry on what we're doing. You know, we'll, we'll have like carbon trading. Um, and, in, and the effect of that, interestingly, has been that governments have used, you've had different political spectrum using climate science in different ways. So you've had people on the more left side of the spectrum in, in, in the political scene talking about carbon trading and trying to maximize the financialization of, of this whole sector and, and make massive profits out of it. And on the more right wing side, you've had elements of the political spectrum trying to hijack climate science to basically um, justify much more state control and saying, you know, we should basically um, we should we should basically try and use all of this to kind of increase the power of the state and the public has to basically pay up and deal with this rather than the, the you know the real the, the, who i mean the, the fundamental sources of co2 emissions are not actually just your general public it's it's the big companies it's your airlines it's um most of the big major um, fossil fuel companies that have lobbying influence on government so you're talking about big major corporates they're the ones that need to really be sorting out what they're doing as, as opposed to purely the public has to take all, all the responsibility. So, and then obviously you've got other ends of the spectrum who completely deny the science as well and say that, no, actually we have another view of the science and they, and they base, and they're saying, and, and interestingly, most of those guys are also taking money from the fossil fuel industry. So it's, it's quite an interesting web of, of interests that are involved in this debate. Yeah, well, you mentioned the, the the corporate element of all this, which of course you know has turned the uh, has given people skeptics reason to be skeptical even more so, and those who are like on the fence perhaps reasons to join the skeptics is that what they see with carbon trading and what have you is just another business opportunity, and they also feel, and this is perhaps linked to what you're saying about the the, uh, the uh, implications of uh, climate change. Uh, that released to the public are perhaps being dampened down somewhat by by scientists and government. That people feel that uh, that they're being you know someone's crying wolf here. That we've been warned that X, Y, and Z is going to happen. Another decade goes by, it doesn't happen. And but of course, ch environmental change can happen very very suddenly, a bit like you know stepping off a cliff. But it's almost like people are constantly be given reasons to buy into the business as usual model. Absolutely. I mean, I think this is the. This is this is a fundamental concern um, of the way in which um, you know special interests have been exploiting um, and, and manipulating science in order to basically justify their own agendas. Um, and this is something that I mean, we flagged up in the film, and um, I've also mentioned in the book is the way in which um, 
the problem of climate change has been, um, you know, I think the I think the problem of climate change is very real. Um, however, the way in which governments have responded has has been designed to continue business as usual and and actually to to to, to actually um, empower and increase profiteering by a tiny minority of banks and corporations and, and and you know carbon trading is one of those things where if you actually look into it, it has very little effect um, on actually ameliorating um, uh, carbon emissions um, and you know there was a study by Deutsche Bank which actually looked into the effect of carbon trading and whether it would deal with CO2 emissions. And their resounding answer was, was, was this, you know, it's actually having a negligible effect and possibly making it worse because what's happening is you've got this situation where, you know, a, a company which, which is involved in, in, in exploiting the, um, you know, fossil fuels and, and, and ripping apart the environment can basically buy loads of carbon credits and say, you know, hey, we've got all of these, once they've bought those carbon credits, they can put that on their books as this is the amount of emissions that we've reduced. And then they can say we're very, very green. Um, and actually what they're doing is actually, and continuing business as usual and everybody thinks they're green. So there is this process of greenwashing that people talk about. Um, and this is because, you know, governments are aware that the implications of climate change require meaningful transformation of our political economy. If we want to really sort things out, um, we have to change the way we do things. And they don't really, you know, there's so much inertia. Governments are so much um, hijacked by, the, by, by these very powerful special interests um, that they don't want that change. So if you look at who are the main special interests that are advising, say, the American government or the British government on energy, poss energy policy, it's the fossil fuel industries. Um, and the fossil fuel industries are very, very worried that a shift towards renewable energies, which are cleaner and in some cases um, much more efficient and in the long term cheaper, um, that this would basically just completely kill their monopoly um, in, in terms of profiteering in this sector. So there is a very there's a very real kind of fear on their part, which is why you've got companies like ExxonMobil and others. Um, Shell, you know, BP, who have had a record of sponsoring um, think tanks and others who are promoting um, sceptical views of climate science. Well, the underpinning to all this is the sort of dawning realisation that industrial civilization is basically unsustainable. And this is mainly down to the energy that it has taken to uh, build it up. Basically, going forward, won't be there to maintain it and we're seeing the signs of that all around us and that of course is um, the background to the climate change uh, issue as well but this is not something that I mean it's it was people in the fringe to start with but really it's going to be quite a while before the mainstream I think is, is really going to be putting this idea forward and getting people used to the idea that we need to start preparing for this now and that it doesn't all have to be a negative but we do need to do something that basically just blocking our ears and covering our eyes and saying you know uh this is not happening it, that's not actually a plan yeah absolutely i mean it's interesting that, that the way the way the debate has evolved and changed over the last decade or so and i mean i think if you go back 10 years there was a point when people who were talking about this idea of of, of peak oil for example which is which is when you know half the world's reserves um are, are depleted 
and then you know you get this point where it's geophysically more difficult and more expensive to to get the oil out of the ground and you end up using a lot more unconventional and more expensive types of oil like tar sands and oil shale and you know shale gas now interestingly you, know, you go back a decade people who are talking about this idea of peak oil geologists and others and, and you know, financial experts were considered a bit of a they were considered a bit pariah and i think halfway through the decade i mean about 2004 to 2007 and 8 i, re I remember seeing that the peak oil discourse became a lot more uh, mainstream uh, taken seriously in the mainstream and then interestingly um in the in the last two years or so there's been a very concerted uh public relations offensive um from from elements of the fossil fuel industry which has been pushing forward this idea that there's the, 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 that that peak oil is a complete myth it's it's a joke it's dead in the water we've got now shale gas we, we have these new technologies of, of fracking which have made it extremely cheap to, to exploit um, these unconventional sources of gas. And, you know, America is going to become, you know, the new kind of, it's going to produce more gas than everybody. And, you know, we've got this wonderful future of, 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 of natural gas for the next, God, no, no one really talks about how long it's going to last, decades or, or so. And everything's going to be fine. It's going to fuel growth. And, and, and to, top, to top it all off, shale gas is supposedly... Uh, a much cleaner fuel than than um, it is cleaner that it's a little bit cleaner than a than conventional oil, um, and and obviously much cleaner than coal. But the idea is that this is going to be a clean bridge fuel, um, as we maybe you know maybe you know switch a little bit towards renewables, you know incrementally. Um, but this is what's been put out over the last uh, two years or so. And, and interesting, in the in the last year in 2012, I mean it was almost we were inundated by these stories in the mainstream from across everywhere to the point that even leading environmentalists you know in the guardian you know george monbiot and and, and damien carrington basically arguing that you know the peak oil idea has gone up in flames in it, its dead this is this is really interesting for me because um if you actually look at the peer-reviewed studies which these guys completely ignored they focused on a couple of high profile reports there was one report put out by Harvard University last year um, that interestingly was sponsored by British Petroleum and an Italian um, oil firm. Um, and there were a couple of other reports to that nature, essentially, which were, you know, heavily co-opted by the industry and which in hindsight, um, you know, very mainstream um, organizations like the UK Energy Research Centre actually critic critiqued these reports and pointed out that they were deeply, deeply flawed. Despite that, these reports got a lot of traction. But we had a lot of other peer-reviewed reports um, that didn't get any attention in the mainstream media. Um, and um, these actually had a very, very different perspective on, on how much shale gas could do. And what they basically said was that, you know, shale gas, absolutely, there's going to be a shift, a greater shift towards it. But it's not going to solve the fundamental issue, which is the oil is going to become more and more expensive. Um, and more and more difficult to get out. Flow rates are decreasing and production rates are declining. Um, and, all, and, and shale gas remains very expensive. Um, and even though there have been dramatic improvements in, in you know, the fracking technology, it's very unlikely that we'll see improvements that will lead to dramatic reductions in oil price over the next few decades or so. So we're still going to see very high prices and these are still going to basically impact detrimentally on the economy and prevent 
um, and create effectively almost a ceiling on economic growth. And even the International Energy Agency and, and you know, their chief economist, Fatih Birol, has acknowledged that regardless of these things we're seeing with shale gas, you know, there is going to be, he's talked over the last few years about a ceiling on economic growth because of the problem of rising oil prices. Um, and this is, if you look at the broader picture, let's not, let's not think in this, in this kind of short-term way, but thinking in, ton of, in terms of what is going to happen um, before the end of this century. So, and that's within, within many of our lifetimes and within the lifetimes of our children. Um, before the end of this century, there is absolutely no doubt that you know, we're looking at the end of the hydrocarbon age and the, the end of reliance on tr traditional mineral resources of energy. All the studies show that at the very latest, by the year 2040, all of these main kind of sources, traditional sources of energy, whether it's oil, unconventional oil, unconventional gas, whether it's nuclear, whether it's uranium, whether it's thorium, um, and thorium, by the way, is dependent on uranium um, in terms of fueling reactions. And all of those things, we're, we're, seeing, we're, we're seeing peaks of production. So we're looking at, by mid-century, um, there, there will be massive, massive change. You know, there, there's, no, there's no option there. Um, and it's quite interesting that none of the people who are engaging in this debate around peak oil at the moment are really talking about the fact that this century, the 21st century, is the end of the carbon age. Um, so we really should be thinking about that. And, and what comes after and how we transition and prepare for that. Because if that is the case, we're completely unprepared. We, we're not prepared for that happening. Um, and we're already seeing the signs and the impacts of this in our economies now with the 2008 financial crash um, and how, that's, um, move, how that has basically continued to kind of affect our economies and continue to kind of deepen in. Um, we're not going to see it. You know, we're, we're, what we're seeing is the beginning of a process of transition. And either we kind of step up to that um, and, and adapt to that, or we kind of continue to bury our heads in the sand and say, you know, we continue business as usual and everything's going to be fine. In which case, we're going we're to face much more problems. Um, just briefly to pick up on something you mentioned a couple of minutes ago, that slightly surprised me. So George Monbiot is saying that the peak oil hypothesis is dead in the water. Yeah, absolutely. He wrote an article uh, a couple of months back where he actually quoted this uh, Harvard report and um, he basically just swallowed it hook, line and sinker. There was no critical analysis at all. And I mean, what was interesting from this for me was actually how how little Monbiot actually understood about what peak oil really is. I mean, he, I, I, he, if he had understood what peak oil is, he wouldn't have swallowed that hook, line and sinker. Um, and I think there is there's some confusion amongst amongst many environmentalists about what peak oil is. People, they, they kind of think peak oil means the end of oil. Oil is running out. And it doesn't mean that. It's, it very simply means a point when you've exploited such an, uh, when you get to the point where you've exploited half the world's reserves. And so, so most of your conventional reserves are, are, are now done. And you're, you're, you're kind of moving deeper into then using much more expensive forms of oil and it becomes much more difficult to get out and therefore more expensive. That's really all it is. It's very much an economic, it's, it's linked to the economics and there is an inherent link between the economics of it and the geology of it. And I think, unfortunately, 
the kind of the, the, some journalists have a very simplistic perception where they think it's just about the geology and the ore is going to disappear and that's it. But but most uh, sophisticated, incredible um, uh, industry experts and geologists who've spoken about peak oil uh, talk talk about it in a much more holistic sense of, of the interplay between the geological factors below ground and the above ground economic and even political factors. And it's only when you take all of those into account, you can kind of come up with estimates of, of when we will start seeing production peaks and how they'll impact on the economies. But it's interesting because you know, a journalist like David Strahan, for example, who is a very well-known uh, former BBC uh, journalist who specializes in the energy sector, you know, he actually did an investigation of this same Harvard report that Monbiot swallowed and that Damon Carrington uh, at The Guardian also swallowed. Um, and, and he completely ripped it to shreds based on interviewing um, some, some experts from the UK Energy Research Centre, as I mentioned. Um, and he went through the actual um, the figures and actually interviewed the author of the report, um, who, who was as a former oil company executive, by the way. And um, actually, the guy actually admitted to him that he had made some serious errors in his in his projections, uh, very in his over optimistic projections. Um, but again, you know, we didn't see any corrections in the mainstream media or retractions, and so this became, you know, this 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 flawed report set the groundwork for for the story that that has now become the mainstream narrative. You know, peak oil is dead. We don't have an energy problem. Well, just to put to this in context for uh, listeners who may not know who George Monbiot is, he's basically. A, uh, British-based writer and environmentalist, and he's frequently, very stridently, putting forward the case that climate change is, you know, the, s- the single biggest, most critical problem we face, and we really need to be addressing it right now. So I was just somewhat taken aback. Not that he would want to refute something that was self-evidently true, but it was just interesting for me that he would he would uh, latch on to something like that. I, I, I just don't see it as sort of serving his case. Again, not that you can want to deny the truth if it's true, but it's just it just struck, struck me as odd. It is, it is odd. I mean, I, I mean, I, I think I mean I've got a lot of respect for Monbiot. I, you know, I think he's I think he's doing a huge amount of good work, and um, you know, and I think it's important for us to be able to respect and and, and, and a difference of opinion and everything. I think he's wrong. I think he's completely wrong on this particular issue, um, and and I and I'm, I'd be interested to see. You know where where this debate goes, but but just I mean I'm not completely surprised by it in the sense that you know it's 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 interesting to see how much the environmental movement has actually shifted away if, um, from recognizing that you know that, that we do face constraints on energy um, to this to this idea that um, you know actually we've got abundant amounts of of fossil fuels and um, the problem is that those fossil fuels might contribute to environmental degradation and and I while I agree that that we have enough fossil fuels to burn our way to climate catastrophe. And I think that's a, a problem. Not realizing that, that there is still an environmental constraint in the way in which we're exploiting our, the, the, our fossil fuel resources, how expensive it's becoming in so many different ways, not just for the environment itself, but also for our economies, which illustrates how unsustainable this process is, really. I think that that is something that... Um, is missing and but i think that's a symptom of of the lack of, of of systemic and holistic thinking even in the environmental movement itself well just brief point on the uh the cost of fossil fuels going forward and of course as you say there is a lot of talk about oil from tar sands and and uh, shale gas and what have you but the two words to keep in mind there is net energy 
which is basically how much you end up with and how much energy you put into the process of getting that resource out of the ground. And that, as you say, is going to mean that the, the cost of oil and other fossil fuels going up uh, year on year. And that's for a lot of people who depend on it day to day, as most of us are, that ex it goes a long way to explaining the cost of it going up. It's not necessarily profit gouging by, by oil companies. To touch upon the issue of renewables, um, again, a lot of talk in this area about ultimately this is where we're going to end up. In terms of renewables and industrial civilization, however, it seems clear to me that we certainly cannot have this sort of civilization we now have and the energy use that we now have with renewables. Yes, I agree with that. I think, um, I mean, there's a number of things to think about here. I and mean, there's the concept of, as, as you mentioned, this idea of net energy, there's this concept of energy return on investment, which is basically how much energy um, can you get out compared to how much money you invest and put in, how much energy you put in. Um, and what we're finding is that as time is going on, as we're depleting our resources, um, it's becoming, we're getting less and less output compared to what we put in. So, for example, with fracking, the amount of net energy that we're putting in, and you, you factor in, you know, the amount of energy that, we're, that, that is used to kind of, to, to, to extract water, um, and to then process, all the processing that's involved with fracking, the, the way that it affects the environment, the cost that that has, um, as well as the amount of natural gas that you use as well in the fracking process to power it. And then you compare that to the amount of um, actual um, oil that you then produce that you've managed to refine. It's, it's much, much smaller than what you had with conventional oil. And that's one of the underlying reasons why energy is so expensive. And interestingly, this, this does have an implication also with renewable energies. So even though renewable energies... Um, when you, I mean, and this is this is an arguable thing. There's a debate about this, but my view is that the stead, the, the studies which have looked at this, um, which I can, which I think are much more credible and much more independent, generally argue that renewable energies have a much more higher um, energy return on investment than um, things like coal and nuclear and shale gas, um, potentially in the long run. Um, but, you know, there's a big debate about that. However, um, what the, where, where, where we have a problem is how high is it and is it enough to sustain the levels of growth and the levels of economic activity that we've had within the conventional oil framework that, we've, that we're very used to in industrial civilization. And unfortunately, it doesn't seem to be, well, well fortunately or unfortunately, depending on how you look at it, it just doesn't seem to be high enough. Um, and it seems pretty clear that while renewable energies might certainly be able to sustain some kind of a high technology civilization in the future, uh, th there are there are many many complex questions about um, you know can 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 this kind of can can these kinds of energies sustain the kind of unlimited growth that we've seen the unlimited technological and industrial expansion that we've seen over the last several hundred years you know which has continued without without any kind of limit. Um, is that possible? I don't think it is. I don't think it's possible at all. It, it requires much more parity with, with, with our environmental limits. And, and I think the other question that, 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 that needs to be asked, which people like um, Guy McPherson have been asking. Guy McPherson is an environmentalist um, in the United States um, who, who's, who's 
he's been asking questions about the, even the longevity of, of, of renewable energies and, and how long we can sustain that because the problem is that renewable energies like for example the batteries that we use they're not based on renewable sources entirely so you know the, the, they're still based on on mining and use of limited amounts quantities of, of minerals metal of certain types of precious metals and, and, and other types of of, of, of scarce um, raw materials um, which some of which are only located in certain parts of the world so there's this question of of you know is, is there going to come a point when even that is going to peak um so, so I think these are difficult questions that if we're really thinking about it seriously, we need to kind of, and I, I wouldn't want to presume that I think Guy McPherson sometimes um, might, might tend towards a sense that, that, you know, because we can't see any clear answers now, therefore we are doomed towards, you know, a kind of regression towards a Stone Age existence. And that, and that, and that is going to be the, the trajectory. Um, and I, I think I think that's, 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 that's a very preemptive kind of... Uh, it's a very presumptuous scenario. Um, we, you know, we just don't know what's going to happen. And I think, you know, again, if we tell ourselves certain stories and we make certain predictions and we say we make we make pessimistic <clears throat> predictions without evidence, then you know we, we're in danger of, of, of creating a self-fulfilling prophecy. So I think we should be cautious. You know, should we should we should be cautiously optimistic about what's possible, but we need to be also pragmatic and realistic about where we're going and start to try and try and think about what are the different solutions and there are there are many other paradigms which try to see beyond just and, and, and see, see beyond just a dependence on on technological thinking and and you know for example the, per, the par, paradigm of permaculture which asks, asks us to think about our relationship with the environment and asks us to think beyond just technology and in that sense i think we can start to see technology and put technology in its place as as a, as a limited tool um, to, to achieve much more important objectives uh, to do with our community, to do with the way in which we relate to nature, rather than the other way around. And sometimes there is a danger, even when we think about technologies like renewable energy, that, that we put those technologies first and we pin a lot on those technologies rather than seeing them merely as, as stepping stones towards um, a, a much more interesting paradigm. Well, yes, as has been pointed out, um, technology is not energy. So for people who are thinking, oh, there'll be some technological fix for this. Well, technology requires energy to make it in the first place. Uh, but the mainstream mindset does rather, uh, to pick up on another one of your points, it does rather seem to be caught between what's called the myth of progress and the myth of apocalypse, that the only alternatives open to us are unending growth and progress and the march forward to a great techno technological future, which I think now has been exposed as, as false. And the myth of apocalypse, which is like, you know, everything's going to end up in some sort of Mad Max road warrior type disaster scenario <laughs> as we yeah. gradually regress back to sort of the Stone Age, as you say. And there are other ways of thinking about this, as you pointed out. To talk about the economy, again, another great uh, problem area and, you know, being constantly, you know, almost the top news item since the financial crash of 2007, 2008. But we do have this model of unlimited growth, as you say. Uh, basically involving endless consumption. Indeed, it seems sometimes that the economic system is designed to consume everything on the earth, that it will chew everything up, spit it out, and won't stop until it stops itself. And behind this, and you address this in the book and the film, is the nature of the banking system, uh, which is debt-based, 
And we now have nations, almost most nations in the world, mired in debt. And this, of course, situation, this is aggravating all the actual real world crises that we're seeing, you know, with with the environment and everything that stems from that. So some form of reform of this system is essential also, I think. Absolutely. I think um, we need to be I mean, we have to face the reality that all of the, you know, this 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 the, the crises that we're facing are. Are, are really one crisis this is why I talk about the crisis of civilization and, and really what we're only what we're doing is really just looking at different facets of it and, and the, the role of the economy um, is clearly a fundamental one in the sense that the economy pertains to how we how we actually relate productively to nature how we actually um, relate to, to nature's resources and unfortunately we have a very exploitative relationship with both nature and with ourselves and and the debt system really really manifests that um and it's not sustainable which and i think this is why we have this situation at the moment if you look at the par- the mainstream debate at the moment between the left and the right it's it's really stale it's become a really stale debate you've either got um people on the left who are who are, who i completely sympathize with um who are who are you know speaking on behalf of working people and saying you know, we can't just be slashed, you know, we, we can't just have this, this insane austerity where we, you know, we're slashing spending on, 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 on the public, on the infrastructure. You know, we're cutting benefits. We're cutting basically uh, the lifeline uh, to, to old people, to young people, to, to, to women, um, education, health. All of these things are being slashed. It's all contracting on in the name of austerity. This is unacceptable. You know, I completely appreciate that. But the problem is, is they don't address the issue of we do have a debt crisis. How do we deal with that? But then you go to the, the, the you know, the, the kind of right side of the spectrum. And it's all about, look, we understand that, you know, there are, that working people have problems. But at the end of the day, this is unsustainable. We have a debt crisis. We're continuously and in, 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 uh, debt is increasing. We have to cut spending. We have to have austerity. There's no other way out. And you can't get out of that binary debate because neither of them are recognizing the fundamental, deeper structural condition of the debt crisis, which is ultimately an insolvency crisis. But actually, the banks in reality are truly actually insolvent. We should really be recognized that they're insolvent. Um, and, and, and they're not looking at the wider role of, of, the, of the capitalist system and capitalist relations of production and, and, the, and the inherent inequalities of that relationship, which create um, in, in which this kind of debt based monetary system is embedded. And I think that fundamental issue is being ignored and overlooked in the way. So, and, and, you know, if we look at the deeper issue of how money is created and, and, and the role of interest and the fact that the way in which this, this system work inherently generates more and more debt, you know, we, we then we realize that we need to move to a very different paradigm, which tries to create, tries to tries to move towards a system of exchange or, or a system of um, monetary exchange of some form, whether it's monetary exchange or just barter, whatever it is, one which is much more in parity with with the real world. I mean, at the moment we've got this situation. I mean, we point this thing out and we point this fact out in the film, um, and it actually has got worse. The situation where um, the, uh, the 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 total value of derivatives trading in 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 the in the financial in the financial system is it was a couple of years ago it was about it was about um, thousand trillion dollars so one one quadrillion uh, dollars 
And actually, since then, it's actually gone up to about 1.2. Last time I checked a couple of months back. Um, so it's going. So it's, that's getting worse. And if you compare that to the, to the total GDP of the global economy, which is basically the, re, you know, the real world of actual you know, manufacturing and production, it was about 60 uh, trillion dollars. So there is this massive disparity between you know, the real world of buying and selling and this, this financial services world of derivatives trading based on creating more and more debt and credit to make profit, um, which is just completely unreal. It's just, and, and there's, at some point or another, that bubble has to, has to crash in some form, which is why over the next decade, we will not see a resolution to the economic crisis. It will, in some way or other, get worse, and it will deepen in different ways. Um, and the only way out of it is to recognize that there needs to be um, some kind of fundamental systemic transformation of our economies based on a, 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 a vision of the world which recognizes the global commons. Rather, rather than having a tiny minority of, of, of the world not just owning the world's, the majority of the, of the world's wealth, but owning the majority of the world's productive resources and raw materials. We, we, we really need to move towards a paradigm where people, communities are, are, are the ones who have ownership and access over, over, the, over, the, you know, this, over you know, the world's resources and are able to share it in some way. Now, obviously, that's, that's thinking in, some people might feel that that's thinking in a very utopian way. And this just isn't going to happen. But the reality is, is that industrial civilization is not going to exist in its current form by the end of this century. It will not survive. This system in its current form is currently crumbling. It's, it's imploding. And only the people who recognize and have a much more long-term perspective and are preparing and working towards that will be in a position to kind of have a much more positive impact on, on what comes after uh, out of this process. But whereas those who are kind of in, in the kind of short-sighted, short-termist bubble of, of, of mad profiteering um, are not going to be able to see that. are going to end up pushing themselves into increasing conflict and increasing chaos. And obviously, while the rest of us, you know, will, will, may well inevitably suffer as a consequence of the ramifications of that, um, I think it's important for us to look forward and remember that if we imagine what by the end of the 21st century, how much this system will be will be weaker. There, there, there is a massive and an unprecedented opportunity um, for us to, 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 to actually think both globally and locally um, in, in, in terms about, well, what do we want to replace um, this existing system if it's not going to survive? And we really need to start working towards that. And the more of us that start working towards that, the more that we lend ourselves to that being possible. Now, the environmental and energy and economic problems that we're facing, they all nexus into and overlap with basically the food and water situation, you know, the, the fundamentals of life. And we're seeing in all parts of the world, parts of the world where there have been food and water issues forever, but through to the industrial West where food and water access to it in, you know, plentiful, indeed excessive quantities has been, is now taken for granted. But we're starting to see in the availability of water, the quality of it and the price of delivering it to households and, and, and industry. And also particularly in food, I mean, food inflation, price inflation rather, is a, um, and of course, 
problems with farming and environmental degradation feeding into that. I mean, that's a regular topic now on, on even mainstream news bulletins. Absolutely. And, and this is this. I, mean, I think the food and water crises really do illustrate the, 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 the interconnected complexity of what we're facing, because these crises are, are a consequence of the interplay, the, the inherent um, um, interconnection of, of, of these deeper things like climate change and energy and the economy. Um, we know for a fact that over the last um, several decades, um, studies have shown that, that as uh, temp- global average temperatures have, have increased, there have been decreases in crop yields um, in the major food basket regions, which have got worse and worse in the last decade. And in the last few years, the impact of the, the erratic weather that we've seen with climate change, you know, we've seen so many crazy things happening in terms of weather in the, in the last year or two years. Um, and every major food basket region has been affected by those um, cli- climate-related incidents. Um, just just those, those, those things alone have have made um, major food basket regions reduce their yields. And, and this year, the Food and Agricultural Organizations Index uh, showed that um, productivity has, has, has been pretty low. We've actually, again, we've got to this point where there's been a shortfall this year. Over the last decade, most of the years over the last decade, we've had a shortfall in production compared to consumption. Um, um, so this is, this is, we're starting to see, um, excuse me, we're, start, we're starting to see us uh, breach the limits of that. And this is being this is being deep, deeply affected by the impacts of, of of the energy system and the economy. So, with the oil prices making everything expensive, that has fed into the food system, and as you said, um, water as well. It's it's now um, in, I mean, energy is so integral to industrial agriculture. It's unbelievable. Every single major point where, where it whether it's um, um, at at point in terms of actually growing food. Um, whether it's in terms of um, processing and transporting food, whether it's in terms of housing it and distributing it, um, you're looking at energy being a major factor. And that has, because of the higher food prices, sorry, higher oil prices over the last um, several years, um, that has fed into the food system and made prices much higher. And And it's had a similar effect in terms of water. And to make matters worse, you've got this predatory financial system where speculators are, you know, you know, um, you know, looking to invest in, in 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 commodities, and you know, one of the major commodities is oil and food, um, and so they as they as they see that prices are going higher, uh, uh, largely because of these um, seemingly kind of uh, inevitable process processes that we're, that we're seeing as a result of the the, the system. They're now investing in those massively, and that's pushing prices even higher. And when those prices get even higher, it just it just kind of rockets the prices much more. Because so so you, what you see here is this interaction between the system of economic profiteering and these kind of deeper kind of ecological and energy problems, and and, and it's really radicalizing it in a way which has created massive massive problems. And the, you know when we look at what happened with the Arab Spring. Um, uh, but there's been several studies which have showed how um, the, the the rocketing food prices were were really the fundamental trigger, which converted you know political grievance, long-standing political grievances, um, into a real propensity to actually come out on the street and say enough is enough because people just couldn't afford to buy bread as a consequence of of these food prices that just went you know rapidly up. Uh, um, 
as of 2010, to, uh, 2009 and onwards, 2008, 2009, 2010. Um, and we know that this is going to be, this is, this is really what, the, this is the future. This is not something that was a blip uh, that happened then. We know that this is going to be an increasing phenomenon and it will get worse unless we do something about it. But even though it's become part of the mainstream debate, we see very little incentive to really talk about how this requires radical change in the way in which our industrial food system operates. And of course, brings us on to the issue of population, uh, because overall, the planetary population uh, is increasing, even though in the industrialized nations, it's sort of gradually declining for other structural reasons. Uh, but of course, issues with food and water then directly affect the population. We already see great swathes of the planet, you know, with not enough food and water uh, really to sustain themselves properly. Uh, we see the prices for both uh, increasing here and the availability somewhat being constricted. And of course, it, over a long period of time, with some of the changes we've been outlining, you then expect the world population to decline because it can't be sustained, you know, because the population equals energy use, essentially. But of course, it may be that we see in terms perhaps of natural disasters or of famines that we see more dramatic uh, population reduction um, episodes. Yes, this definitely looks to be, um, you know, there's definitely going to be um, a lot more. I mean, if we look at the trends that we've seen over the last decade or so in the way they've increased, it does look that look like there's going to be much more of, of, of this kind of thing happening in you know, natural disasters, you know, a, a proliferation of famines, increasing food and water scarcity. Again, if we look at a business usual scenario and unfortunately, you know, the, the, the populations that will be most affected will be the populations of, of the less developed uh, countries. Um, and, and then they are likely to face, um, you know, ma ma major crises, um, which could lead to many, many deaths. Um, in many ways, but I mean, this question of population is again, it's a very, it's a difficult question because there is again, there is this very binary debate. You either have the people on the one side who simply say, um, you know, population. There's been there's a correlation between um, the growth in energy consumption um, over the last you know centuries of industrial civilization and a correlation with um, you know the rate of population growth, and therefore. There has to be a decline in the population overall, in order to deal with the energy problem, um, and there and and this and you know and that's very that's a very simple that's one simple side of the argument. On the other side, we have an argument which is that that no, this is not true because if you look, for example, at the amount of um, the amount of food that we do actually produce. I mean, having said that, we are facing um, we're starting to face shortfalls in terms of um, consumption versus production. People have calculated. Um, the amount of, uh, if you look at it theoretically, they've calculated the amount of food available in the world. And what they've discovered is that actually, that's actually enough food in terms of calories to feed everybody in the planet at the moment, um, and possibly even more people on the planet. So it, they say it's a problem of distribution, and the food isn't being distributed properly, and because it's a very unequal food system, and that's what we need to deal with. Now, again, this debate can sometimes get very polarized, but there's some truth to both sides. And there's the simplicity to both sides. I think I think generally, the, you know, the picture that we're seeing overall, when we look at all of these things is that we can, we cannot continue growing. And I, I think that applies equally to population. I think the, the general idea that we can just keep growing everything here and there is just is clearly absurd. This mindset has to change. However, at the same time, I think we need to be cautious about how we apply that general maxim 
specifically when it comes to population, because it can sometimes be abused. And, you know, what we see with some of the stuff that has come out from um, government thinking um, in the West is that, oh, we should have population control of the third world because they have massive, rapidly growing populations. So we should basically sort them out. So this kind of offsets the problem and says it's all their fault. It's those, you know, those third world miscreants, whoever they are, who are basically breeding too much. And we need to basically force them or encourage them to control their populations, you know, sterilization, birth control, blah, 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 blah. But what's interesting is that if you actually look at, I think the issue here is energy consumption. It's not population per se, which is the driving factor in, 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 in the problems that we're facing. It's primarily to do with the, the, the way in which we're using energy. And if you actually look at energy consumption, um, you know, it's pretty clear that, that the United States, Britain, you know, Japan, China, Russia, all the major industrial powers, um, even though we now have a situation where our populations are not just tapering off or leveling off, they're actually in some cases declining. Um, but we're the ones that are using the vast majority of, 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 of the Earth's energy resources. When you compare that to the levels of population growth in the third world, yes, they do have um, um, quite large population, rapidly growing populations. However, their energy use is, is, is quite minimal. Um, so the people who are actually using the most food and energy and water on the planet are, are, are basically people like you and me who live in the industrial world um, and and um, despite us having a minority of the population are actually using more of the Earth's resources. Um, so I think it's I think from that perspective, we in the West have a special responsibility of being very nuanced when we talk about the dangers of population growth um, and recognize that, yes, you know, we do need to encourage um, uh, uh, limits and, 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 and uh, pragmatism. And, and, and when it comes to, to growing population and, and encourage people to think about um, tapering off our populations. But how we do this is the question. And I think the reason that population has, has kind of um, generally sociologists argue that the key to dealing with population growth is not, you know, external controls like everybody has to have birth control. Everybody has to kind of have sterilization. Whether or not, whether we encourage it voluntarily or whether we get the state to enforce it, it doesn't generally encourage, people don't necessarily do it. Um, what you want is to get people to feel that they're meeting their own needs. Here, in our societies, because we've got to a point where um, through industrialization, we seem to be meeting our needs, the, the reliance on, on producing more children as an economic asset has decreased. So we don't need that many children. Whereas what's happening in the third world is people are actually having more kids as an economic asset because you have more kids and then your kids will go out and work for you and that increases the labor force. So that's one of the reasons why very these very poor very, very poor families in, the, in, in these poorer, less developed countries are relying on and we have a rapid growth population. Obviously, there's also other issues like you know, lack of literacy, lack of education on, on, on issues like birth control and issues like contraception, which also feeds into it. So for me, the key here is that we need to be focused on lowering our consumption and we need to be offering people in less developed countries ways of, the, of, of an edu and offering them way, ways and insights of finding ways to, 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 pro to develop their societies in a way which is not within 
the industrial paradigm, which is within a new sustainable paradigm, which is based on, a, you know, a new, a, a much more um, holistic philosophy of, 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 um, of, you know, that kind of um, building our societies in parity with our environment. And that, that requires a, a much more different um, way of looking at things. And there are some organizations who are looking at, at, at this idea of, of, of an alternative paradigm of development, which doesn't involve following the path of industrialization. Um, but this, that's what I think we need to be, be focusing on uh, in order to kind of deal with both the issue of, you know, of, of massive poverty, as well as the issue of, 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 of you know, growing populations, which, you know, you know are, are, you know, kind of like causing these, feeding into these environmental uh, problems of food scarcity and water scarcity. Now, the issue of terrorism you address uh, in the book and the film as well. And of course, that uh, may not appear to be at first, but it is intimately linked to a lot of the problems we've been discussing. And I think it was John Perkins, the uh, uh, author of the book Economic Hitman, which I recommend to anybody and everybody who said that, that he had met many terrorists, but he didn't meet ever meet one that wanted to be a terrorist. And of course, there's the issue here as well is what is your designation? What's your definition of a terrorist? And a lot of the problems that we're facing um, are created by political and economic policies, um, which are then themselves tied to resources. And it's through these, in some of the more desperate situations that are created, oftentimes ends up in violence and in people organizing violence in the form of terrorism. And uh, in the, you give a really good example of the Taliban's dealing, dealings with the oil industry uh, in the film. Yeah, so this is, this is something that um, even now, I think, has a, has a major role to play in uh, our involvement in Afghanistan. You know, by, and by our, obviously, I, I mean involvement of our, our governments and as a consequence, our, our militaries. Um, and, the, you know, the whole Taliban thing, one, one thing people aren't aware of is that um, the CIA actually um, sponsored the Taliban in its rise to power um, from 1994 all the way through to 2001. Um, and uh, many, so I, I can imagine some people might think this is a conspiracy theory. It's, it's, it's not a conspiracy theory at all. I mean, it was. this has been very well documented. It's something that I've documented um, over many, many years. Um, and one can read about this story in, in, in very mainstream books, um, such as the book by... Um, Ahmed Rashid, who, who is a well-known Pakistani journalist uh, who has written for the Wall Street Journal and the Far Eastern Economic Review, The Telegraph. Um, and he's, his main book called The Taliban, um, which is, was a best-selling book, um, goes into some detail interviewing uh, various U.S. officials and looking at uh, various documents to come, which shows that the United States in the 1990s decided that the Taliban would be the key to stability in Afghanistan. And actually, the reason they thought um, that the Taliban would be an ideal partner was because they, they were very worried about um, trying to establish and monopolize uh, various um, oil and gas pipeline routes to Central Asian gas in the Caspian Sea. And one of the routes that they wanted to dominate was going through Afghanistan and to, uh, through Pakistan. Um, so they wanted to establish at that time um, some kind of a... a a, a way of stabilizing Afghanistan so that they could establish this pipeline route and that they could have investment. And and one U.S. official uh, is quoted by by Rashid, kind of jubilantly saying how you know this is going to be like Saudi Arabia. You know we'll have Sharia, um, 
we have Sharia law, we have uh, we have we have you know we might have the mullahs, but at the end of the day, we'll also have loads of investment, and we'll have the oil pipelines. So, this was a quite explicit strategy. Um, it was even discussed in in U.S. congressional hearings um, quite avidly. And at that time, we had um, the companies that were involved uh, in this endeavor were Unocal, based in California, uh, the big oil company, and Enron, uh, ironically. Um, and this this po policy proceeded until about two, the year 2000, 2001, um, when it seems that the Americans realized that the Taliban were not going to solve their problems. Um, you know, the civil war was escalating between the Taliban and their opponents, the Northern Alliance factions. Um, and at some point, it seems that they came to the conclusion that what they needed to do was actually get the Taliban to form some kind of a federal alliance with um, the, the, the opposition warlords. So this is basically what they proposed to the Taliban. The Taliban said no. Um, and as this, as, as this that, that was really when relations between the Taliban and the US really began to break down. And then we see these series of negotiations with um, Pakistan kind of trying to play the honest broker between the Taliban and the US between um, you know, early 2001 all the way to the summer of 2001, where we actually had um, a meeting. Uh, to these, they call these two-track negotiations, diplomatic negotiations, where the US representative told um, uh, the Pakistani foreign minister who was there speaking on behalf of the Taliban and said to them that, look, either you're going to have uh, a carpet of gold or a carpet of bombs. Um, and he actually um, pinpointed uh, the possibility that there would be military action uh, against the Taliban in October 2001. Um, now, obviously, you know, the event of 9-11 happened. Um, and then the United States went in. So in, in this context, it appears that 9-11 um, provided a, a, a convenient pretext for the US to actually pursue an already pre-existing plan. Um, and since then, you know, this kind of, this kind of interference between um, this, this, object, this apparent objective of, of defeating terrorism and the objective of controlling resources has, has continued to... to to, to influence the dynamics of the conflict. And, you know, in the southern part of Afghanistan, where we've had a lot of the, um, a lot of the, uh, the kind of the, the input, the push from, from the British and the Americans, is precisely where the proposed gas pipeline was supposed to go. And even as, as late 2006 to 2008, we still had negotiations with the US, uh, uh, pushing forward negotiations to try and get this trans-Afghan pipeline off the ground. Again, they haven't they haven't succeeded, and there still seems to be a lot of instability in the country. Um, but unfortunately, it seems that this has been a, this has been a major role, and it really does highlight the the role of um, of energy in in um, in how we end up getting involved in very very short sighted endeavours, um, which result in in creating the problems that we then end up having to deal with down the line. Well, of course, the terrorism uh, issue. Uh, threat is being used to justify a lot of the increasing control and surveillance we're seeing now in society. <laughs> and this is also being used to counter opposition to the business as usual model, uh, including environmental activists in this. And uh, this is all in an effort just to keep things going forward, even though they're breaking down. And uh, of course, you also point out increasing militarism 
in society. We see this now, you know, American football games, it's not unusual to have troops there. And we saw it very much with the London Olympics. I mean, extraordinary level of uh, militarization there. And you sort of posit that this is sort of being put in place as a structure so that as things, as the crisis um, manifests in actual collapse, and, and it might just be episodic at first, sporadic, but that this control system is going to be needed to kind of uh, keep things uh, from complete breakdown. Yeah, it is, it's interesting. And I think I think there's I mean, there's a debate to be had about how much of this is is being um is, is part of is part of some kind of a, a conception of how the future ought to be and how much of it is is reactionary and based on very narrow a very narrow ideological lens and i i do think it's a bit of both you know i think there are elements of the establishment which which genuinely believe um that um that 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 they have the, the not just the right but they have the responsibility uh, uh to um to impose more and more um, top-down structures, because they believe that that is how to maintain um, and perpetuate what what they think is really the most advanced system on earth, um, and, and and there is an ideological kind of framework for that. Um, but at the same time, I at the same time there is also clearly a reactionary component to it, where you see um, you, you see you see people in power kind of kind of looking at what's going on. And the immediate response is, well, you know, I'm not sure how to deal with that. We need to throw more money at it and we need to throw more more guns at it. And uh, we need to prepare for this potential emergency uh, that might happen here. We need to pre- prepare for emergencies here. And, 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 and when you look at the way that that thinking, I think, coalesces, that's when you see these very disturbing types of strategic thinking. And um, in the film, as we talk, we ref- I allude to... Um, uh, documents that have been uh, produced, planning documents produced by the British and the American and European militaries um, in looking at global crises. Um, and you know, I go through some of these in some detail in the book, and it's quite interesting to see that there is this um, it, it, that that there's. It's not like these guys don't know what's coming. You know, they're very well aware. They talk about climate change. They talk about energy problems. They talk about food and water scarcity. Um, but what's interesting is the complete lack of a holistic approach to understanding it. Um, and what ends up happening, interestingly, and this is this is where I my, my, my concerns about um, the way in which we could abuse the population growth problem. Um, this is this kind of highlights that is what you find is that the solution they, they put forward is it's actually a population problem. So what they and what they say is that over the next, um, you know, 20, 30 odd years, we're going to see rapid population growth in in these areas of the less developed world, and specifically, we will see rapid population growth in these Muslim-majority countries of you know the Middle East and North Africa, and in these parts of the world, we're going to see a massive youth bulge. Um, there'll be too many young people. They'll get angry. Um, their local governments will not be able to provide sufficient goods and services, and there will be a danger of political radicalization. And we will see this massive, you know, coalescence. Of, of movements between kind of Islamist radicalization and Marxist radicalization, and um, they might team up with the middle class movements in, in you know in the West, 
and there will be this global middle class uprising and um, it's going to challenge the global and ec the political economic order and uh, we're going to have to basically put more resources into containing this and blah 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 it's a very orwellian uh, picture of the world and that's why i think it's important for us to kind of be aware that we well, look let's focus on the problem here and the problem here is the structures the deeper political and economic and ideological structures that enable this system to continue um and, and include including the problem of you know rapid population growth and the chaos that, that that might produce we have to look at the systemic context of that rather than just looking at the symptoms and so this is a symptom-oriented approach. And what's interesting here is that when you adopt a symptom-oriented approach and a very narrow framework, you know, which is very fragmented and looks at the science in its fragmented context, um, and th that's when you get this, this knee-jerk, very, very reactionary, very simplistic kind of responses, which completely fail, ironically, to deal with the underlying issues. I mean, this kind of approach clearly wouldn't deal with the actual causes of the problem it would just try and set us up to deal with what might happen when things get out of hand meanwhile climate change will get worse you know energy depletion will get worse the economy will get worse and we'll end up with you know these this kind of massive kind of tra trajectory towards state militarization police state kind of uh, empowerment and that's very very dangerous and i think at the same time you know what makes that worse is there probably are uh, elements of the elite establishment which, which actually think this is a, not don't just think that this is a this is this might be a necessary thing, but there might be some people who think that is, this is a great thing, and this is what we wanted all along, and this is quite convenient, and let's just carry along with this for the ride. And who cares if you know there are many many millions of deaths that result in less developed countries as a consequence? Because well, they're they're useless eaters anyway. And I think there is a danger that there is that kind of there is also that kind of very insidious mindset amongst some elements but again i would be careful not to try to not not to conflate that bureaucracy that exists at the heart of power as as kind of one evil giant entity that is planning this planning some kind of a thing because that's just not how it works it's very complex there are many many competing and diverse special interests in that nexus of power um and um, and they don't see eye to eye and they don't always have the same vision and the same paradigm. So it's important to recognize that what's happening is a result of that complex nexus of different interests playing off against one another, playing off against public reactions and misreactions and, and producing this this trajectory. And we have an opportunity in that space to, 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 to actually to, to influence it if, the, if we so choose to. In conclusion, Perhaps we can say that really the governments uh, of the world are unlikely to make the, the transition that we need in time to avoid the worst outcomes uh, of the problems that we're facing, uh, that really we have to do it. And when I say we, I mean individuals, smaller groups and organizations that can somewhat piecemeal at first, perhaps, but just begin to make small steps that, that really will add up in the long term. And we see this now with uh, increasing localism and a lot of good things being achieved at that level, rather than trying to get a global fix sorted out, you know, set up and then enacted in one go. And we may find that if we can start to leave consumerist culture behind, that there's actually a healthier, happier future for us all out there, even in parts of the world now where the problems seem absolutely intractable. Yes, I think that what we're seeing really, apart from seeing, I mean, there's there's two ways of looking at this. You know, 
um, the, there's the pessimistic way, which is, oh my God, it's the end of everything that we know. Um, but the optimistic way is, is, is this is actually potentially the beginning of, of something new and exciting. Um, and I think ultimately what it points to is, is, is not just the failure of the prevailing paradigm, um, but actually it, it, it's obsolescent. So the, 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 the paradigm actually is, just doesn't work. It isn't, it's failing to actually make us happy. Um, if you look, you know, you, you, you look if you look at the heart of, of neoliberal capitalist power, and you see the correlation between, you know, rising inequality, um, rising rates of crime, rising rates of of, of, of mental health problems, um, rising rising rates of depression, um, and all of that combined with this escalating trajectory towards um, both massive uh, materialistic consumption as well as uh, exploitation of, of, of the environment, which is unsustainable, you get a general picture that this, this, this paradigm of, of, of very, very reductionist um, kind of um, crude materialism um, isn't really, in, it's, not in our, it's not actually in our interest and it doesn't make us happy. And there is an opportunity and a potential to create something new and exciting. Um, and, and we should not close the door to the possibilities of what the future might hold. While I think at the moment, um, it's very clear that governments are not interested uh, and, and, and power as it, as it stands is not interested in changing. I think in a way that, that that's, that's almost irrelevant because we know that that structure that's in place, this juggernaut is hell bent on, on, on where it's going. But if, if anything, that makes it all the more urgent for we the people to begin right now to make changes in our, in our lives, in our communities, in our societies that can pave the way for what comes after uh, as and when things continue to, to, to collapse and crises continue to accelerate. Because as things do get worse over the next 10 years, there will be an increasing appetite uh, for new ideas, for change amongst members of the population. And I think we've seen this in both East and West, you know, with the Arab Spring, with the Occupy movement, we've seen that there, there really is a mass appetite amongst the majority of the population for, for something new and something different and, and I think um, you know all the public opinion polls show that the majority of people um, in the US and the UK and Europe uh, are increasingly skeptical of, of government they're increasingly um, skeptical of, of, of the way in which uh, foreign policy is going um, major despite all of the kind of climate skepticism that we've seen they're increasingly worried about the majority of the populations are worried are worried about the environment and worried about climate change and feel that something needs to be done. Um, you know, they're they're, they're skeptical of, of the banking community and they're skeptical of our political masters and the way that way that the parliamentary systems are failing and, and, and are effectively um, not creating real change. And I, I think what what we're missing here is is um, a coherent kind of vision for what comes next. And I think that's really the task that we need to set ourselves as individuals is to, is to throw ourselves into, in, into that task of creating that vision. And what I always tell people, people always ask me, you know, what do I do as an individual? I, you know, I feel powerless. What can I do? And I always say to people that, look, you know, I, I feel that I, I feel like I'm the same as you. Um, I'm just a guy who has come across as information. Um, and, and I tried to do what I thought I, I could do best to do, to do what, what can I, I thought, you know, I'm a writer, I have an academic background, what I can do is try and bring these ideas together and and create something coherent out of them and, and give them to people and say, 
and, and, and try and educate people. And I think what each of us needs to do as individuals and in our communities is say, as an individual, what have I got to give? But what are my skills? What are the things that I enjoy? What can I do um, to create change and create something new um, that that will that will be slightly out of sync and slightly out of out of out of, that that will break with you know the same doldrums paradigm, not just in wider societies but even in my own life. What can I do that is different and new and create something new and get together with your with your colleagues with your friends and and work together and see how you can create a new pattern of change and activity in your life, in your community, whatever it is, however small it is, um, however modest it is and do that. And I really think that the more people that actually start adopting um, that kind of mindset, that we actually want to start creating things which are new, however small, in our lives, in our communities, um, I, I do believe that there, 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 there is an immense possibility of change. And I, I don't think it's going to be easy. Um, I'm, I, I'm very, very conscious of the fact that um, um, you know, we're, in, we're part of this juggernaut system that is going to create massive catastrophe. But I don't see that as a reason for us to stop and be and kind of give up and say, well, that's the way it's going to be. And if anything, I see it as a reason to be more determined than ever to plant the seeds of something positive and something good that e- even if that's not taken up by this generation that is taken up by, by, by the next generation and the generations after them. Wonderful. Well, Nafiz, Crisis of Civilization is the film uh, based on the, your book. Uh, perhaps you could tell people um, just about where they can check both of those out and any other information you'd like to give out, uh, websites perhaps. I know you have a blog, for example. Yeah, sure. So, I mean, any the, the, film, the film is now available for free online. Um, you can watch it at www. Uh, crisisofcivilization.com spelt with a Z um, and you know you can also you know if you want to help out you can buy the DVD and send it to your friends um, we're still open to people um, doing screenings you can actually download the the film for free um, using torrents um, and you can and you just spread you can spread it around in any way or form um, and uh, we encourage people to screen it in their communities if they want People can also get the book and find out more about the book at the same website. And on, apart from that, if people want to learn more about uh, my general work, they can check out um, my, the website of my, my think tank, which is um, iprd.org.uk. And I also write a blog where I host a lot of my journalistic stuff, which is it's just nafiz, n-a-f-e-z.blogspot.co.uk. Well, Nafiz Ahmed, thank you very much for joining us today on legalizefreedom.com. Thank you so much, Greg. It's been a pleasure. Well, that's it for another week. As always, thank you so much for listening. If you enjoyed the show, please check out the website. That's legalize-freedom.com. You can spell legalize with an S or a Z. There you'll find an archive of programs and many equally fascinating topics. Until next time, I'm Greg Moffat, and you've been listening to legalizefreedom.com. <laughs>